And hello again, everybody. Welcome into Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. And this is the show where we talk to a whole lot of people in politics, working in, commenting on, reporting on the world of politics. But, of course, we don't talk to them about anything having to do with politics whatsoever. We are merely interested in what makes their heart go aflutter when talking about music and bands and artists. My name is Scott Bertram, and my co-host, Jeff Blair, standing by. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Scott. How are you? I can't even begin to tell you how excited <laughs> I am for today's episode. I've been waiting for this one, like Phil Collins might have said in, in the air tonight, for all of my life. <laughs> we will tell you, if you haven't checked Jeff's Twitter feed recently, what the band is in just a moment. A reminder, you can subscribe to this fine podcast for new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. This is our third episode. You can go back and find old ones with uh, Sean Trendy and Van Halen. And episode two, Robert Costa of the Washington Post and Dave Matthews Band. And uh, today we are very pleased to have with us uh, Tim Miller, former uh, Jeb Bush 2016 Communications Director, co-founder of America Rising, partner at Definers Public Affairs. You can find him on Twitter at Tim O.D.C. Tim, thanks so much for joining Political Beats. Hey, Scott and Jeff. I'm really pumped to do this. Thanks for having me. And uh, before we get to the band, we want to know a little bit more about you, Tim. What is your political beat? What's your political job? What, what do you do, do during the day when you're not listening to music? Sure. Um, I basically was a campaign gypsy for about 15 years. Uh, as you said, most recently as Jeb's communications director, but I was a flack for a lot of establishment Republicans, if you will, out of vogue these days. Uh, and uh, currently I'm a partner at Definers Public Affairs. We do uh, corporate uh, communications and also dabble in some uh, political uh, work still as well uh, with Matt Rhodes, who was uh, Romney's campaign manager, and my other business partner is Joe Pounder, who is the research director at the RNC. We have a specialty in opposition research, which is the fun stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, the dark arts. Mm. <laughs> you, you can't write a profile about us without mentioning the dark arts. That's uh, mandated. Usually I would be the one here to, to kind of intro the band and tell people what we're going to be talking about, but this one is so close and so near and dear to the heart of our beloved Jeff Blair that I, I, I turn this responsibility <laughs> Over to you, Jeff. Tell us, tell us what we're talking about today. Well, the band that we are talking about today is, at least in my own benighted soul opinion, probably the most interesting, if not the most interesting, then at least one of the most interesting and most relevant uh, American or North American, depending on how you care to characterize them, uh, rock groups of the last 17 years, uh, uh, certainly of the 2000s and of the uh, the current 10s, whatever you would call that, as a decade. Um, it's uh, a band that played a fundamental role in the founding and the popularization of the so-called indie rock scene of the 21st century. And it's a band that really still believes in the power and the importance of albums as actual statements and of music, melody, and lyrics as a sort of united front where they all come together and mean something and should be consumed, combed over, thought about, and actually, you know, play a role, some kind of important role in your life. Of course, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the monkeys. No, I'm talking about <laughs> Arcade Fire. 
Arcade Fire, the band that was based out of Montreal, although they have since relocated uh, to points further south. Um, this is a favorite band of mine, and it's a band that I am very pleased that Tim Miller here has decided to join us to discuss about. So, Tim, I guess what we would like you to do is, uh, before we continue further onward, is tell us, why is Arcade Fire one of your favorite bands? Why is it a group that you wanted to talk about today? And what have they meant to you? Um, sure. I was, I was happy that you asked about Arcade Fire because, like you said, they're so unique and going to be so fun to talk about. I, I, to tell the full reason about my appreciation for Arcade Fire, I've got to back up a little bit um, to before the days where I uh, listened to music that the cool kids listened to. And uh, what I got into, uh, how I got into music was by listening to jam bands. I'm from Colorado. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so in high school and college, uh, I followed around a band called Widespread Panic, yeah. basically a southern version of fish mm -hmm. for uh the what do you mean you talking to us like we don't know who widespread <laughs> panic is Tim? no Come i'm on. for the listeners man for the listeners i would never <laughs> i would not dare obviously you guys know about the relevancy and importance of widespread panic but the great thing about panic was or any, any, any if you got into any jam band uh as an intro to music was uh you know they wore their influences on their sleeves mm -hmm. and and it was just such a good intro to me for me to you know learning about you know, classic rock bands that Jeff listens to, not the ones that are on the radio, you know, for to blues and, and um, uh, you know, jazz and, and country and the other artists they'd cover. And so, um, you know, as I came out of college and into my political career, uh, unfortunately, I did not have the time on my hands to travel around following a band, uh, <laughs> subsisting on uh, parking lot grilled cheeses. Uh, and, but, and so I think what you found is for those of us, my peers, uh, who, who really were into um, the music and, and were moved by the music of, of these sorts of bands, uh, a lot of us kind of gravitated towards, um, you know, more of the artsy rock and indie rock uh, bands of the era, and that takes us to the mid-aughts, and so it should not be surprising to you that, you know, the ones that we gravitated to most were Arcade Fire, LCD Sound System, The White Stripes, The Strokes, um, you know, bands of that, that nature that were, you know, the... Um, the relevant, as Jeff said, uh, uh, rock bands of the time. And so um, it was about then that Arcade Fire had they had just come out with uh, Funeral, obviously, and uh, uh -huh. Neon Bible is a little bit in the future. They did a stint on uh, the Dark, uh, Dark Was the Night, which was a, uh, a collaboration album with a bunch of indie bands um, that was right around the time that we, I was really getting into this kind of music. There's a brilliant song called Lennon on that that I, I highly recommend. And, um, you know, that, an outtake that from that, Funeral, no less. Oh, is that, is that true? Um, it was one that. song cut from Funeral. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really phenomenal. Um, and so, you know, we would, uh, at a more leisurely pace than I did with Panic, uh, you know, travel to see bands of this nature. I got to see Arcade Fire. We can talk about some of those shows in Brooklyn with the Ramones and at Coachella and uh, headlining Coachella and, and elsewhere. But I, I did think that a band like Arcade Fire that has, in a sense, you know, you wouldn't call them, I guess, jammy per se, uh, but they do, you know, the, with, between the longer tracks, um, the types of people that, um, that were attracted to the music, I don't think it should be a surprise that that was not a natural um, evolution for me and my musical interests. And uh, I think that Arcade Fire, you know, I when I really sort of remember and... Um, 
you know, I'm emotionally connected to the bands that I first found in that, uh, you know, in this sort of indie vein. And, you know, obviously that was Arcade Fire and with Rebellion and all the various neighborhood tracks on, on Funeral were, were ones so always, I'll always have an emotional connection to. Well, I, you know, it, it, it's funny how Tim came at this from a jam band perspective. Now, I came at it from a very weird kind of hermetic musical shut-in perspective. I used to never be a guy who went to see live acts. Uh, ironically, the first time I ever saw Arcade Fire live uh, was in 2004, in I believe the summer of 2004. This is before Funeral came out. Uh, and then the, the second time I ever saw them was like three weeks ago. <laughs> in Chicago, when they played, you know, as you know, right before the Lollapalooza, um, and so I long gap in between, and <clears throat> what, of course, their existence, <clears throat> the experience of them for me has been since then, has been hearing the studio albums, picking up the B sides, the obscurities, listening to the live performances. Of course, YouTube changed everything, so you can go watch all of their their shows. But I, I, I you know, when Tim says he said. You know, he points out how it's a little odd in some ways that people who like jam bands would respond to something like Arcade Fire, which aren't a jam band. It isn't really strange at all because it's the intensity of their live performances. I, I wasn't sure whether I would tell this little anecdote, but I guess I will. The first time I ever saw them was uh, in, as I said, June of 2004. And why was I there? I was there because a friend of mine from college who moved to Toronto had seen them when they were playing in Toronto in 2003, like really early. I, I think it was their touring their EP or something like that. And he bought the EP in the lobby after the show. He bought two copies of it. Um, he kept one copy for himself. And uh, what did he do with the second copy? Uh, he didn't give it to me. He gave it to some girl he was trying to sleep with. <laughs> Burnt. He burnt a CD of his own version for me and mailed that to me. So I respect him enough for that. So when they finally showed up to DC, they were the third build act on a kind of like Canadian rock scene comes to Washington, DC tour. They played at some small club called the Black Cat. This would have been. This is, in... your, this is your losing my edge. I was there. Uh, street cred. <laughs> it is. It really is. But the thing is, is like I wasn't there when they got big. I was. But the, the funniest thing about it is that they came out. I was interested because I was like, hey, I like that EP. It was a good EP. Okay, you know what? I can be convinced. Let's have a couple beers and then go. And um, they came Who out on the stage. Other Canadians, and, like the new pornos or something. Or they were touring the with Canadians? the unicorns. Does anybody remember the, oh, the unicorns? unicorns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and and I think Death from Above was the second build act. Um. So they were the first build act. They were the, first, the, 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 the opening gig. They came on stage, um, and you know I, I had heard the EP, and I, I just listened to it before we came in, and I was expecting, well, okay, maybe they'll play this stuff. The first song they played was this incredibly angry number. Uh, they, they literally it was like Win Butler seemed like he was almost spitting on the audience with, with, with fury. It was incredibly intense. I think Will Butler was wearing a crash helmet and he was <laughs> banging on the head of another guy. It might have been Richard Reed Perry. I can't remember. I was drunk. Um, uh, it was an incredibly forceful performance. They spit the words out. They spit the music out. And when they finished with that opening song, it bombed. It bombed like you've never seen anything bomb before in your life nobody responded there was like a smattering of claps 
basically indifference. People were getting their drinks. Nobody gave a flying F about this band. And that song that they played was Wake Up, which is the most <laughs> important song in Arcade Fire's entire career. <laughs> I was reading. I was reading. I read a couple of profiles before we did this, and one of my favorite anecdotes from those profiles was Wynn said that "Wake Up" was initial was initially like an angry you song. You know that. Uh, see, okay, like, I didn't even know that, but that makes so much yeah. sense. It, yeah, was, was, it, was, it was initially it was... meant to be like, "Pay attention to us. Wake up. We have. We you know we have um, we have something to say." And, and you know what? Uh, Nobody been, listened. Uh, it's funny I, I listened. Evolved to the, to, to now kind of just saying this. <laughs> sort of joyous celebration too. So uh, that was, you know, and so I heard that album and I was, I heard that concert and I was like, okay, well, this is pretty interesting. It was interesting audience confrontation, if nothing else, but the intensity of that live performance came through. They were still, even then, you know, like uh, Regine Chasson, who's Will Win Butler's wife, you know, brought out, I'm, I'm, you can't see me right now, but I'm doing this, this arm motion, like the breaststroke to represent what it looks like to play an accordion. She brought out the accordion for this No Cars Go, which was, even then they were playing. And it was like really intense. There was violins. Everyone was just, you know, getting in, getting involved. And it felt to me like the closest analogy I could think of as an actual live act or, or an instrumental ensemble was the band. Um, which is strange because the band, of course, played you know, you know, country rock if you can call it that, or some sort of weird folk country hybrid. Uh, but it was the same sort of we were switching off instruments. Nobody has a committed role. We just do what matters. We get to the instrument that we need to play to make the music work, and the intensity and emotional commitment is there 100% every second of the time they're on stage. And I stayed with it and then eight months later the same friend who gave me that first EP said like hey you know they released an album and that album was funeral and nothing was ever the same <laughs> after a funeral came out for me because that was as a guy who was kind of not really into most modern music although I dabbled and I kept myself up to date um, Radiohead was of course my big jam when I heard funeral I was like this is the this is the emotional lodestone for me. 24 years old, kind of, you know, suburban kid myself. These songs about growing up in neighborhoods. It's not urban hipsterism. It's, it's deeply sincere, but it's really emotionally kind of put together. And the musical craftsmanship is so, so considered. I had kind of convinced myself at that point that, that bands like this didn't exist anymore, that they were too uncool to exist. And so when I watched them slowly ascend in popularity and kind of become big over time, I felt grateful for the fact that they were. And I also kind of felt a little bit like I was being robbed uh, mm -hmm. of a private experience. This, this was my group, you know, this was my emotional private zone. And now everyone else was liking them and Pitchfork was praising them. And uh, it's strange how you get angry about these things when you're a young, you know, you're a young person. Um, 
but anyways, I mean, I would, I would like to know, first of all, Tim, how did you first encounter funeral? Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I first encountered funeral on, um, right in this time I was telling you about after, after I got out of college and I'm working my ass off on campaigns, but trying to, you know, keep fresh in music. I had a couple of musical friends who would send, um, uh, mixed CDs. I'm old, right? Gosh, uh, how out of date does that sound? Um, and, uh, rebellion, uh, was on one of them and, I mean, man, like you said, what a just a full uh, and joyous sound. I mean, I think that with with music, it's funny. I, I'm, you know, the people who are attracted to indie rock broadly, uh, if we're going to stereotype, you know, are kind of ironic, detached, you know, and a lot of these bands carry the same, uh, you know, carry themselves in that way. And, and there's an appeal to that. But Funeral, you know, after Rebellion, I went out and got, um, you know, downloaded the whole album. Uh, Funeral is so the opposite of that, right, to what you're saying. I mean, they are earnest in, uh, you know, in their exuberance on, on the album. And there's an appeal to that as a departure from the kind of the, um, you know, ironic um, uh, Mien of, of the other, um, you know, of other indie rock bands. And, and they managed to do it in a way, and I'm sure we'll be able to talk about this on the other albums, that's not cloying, right? And you, you, you know, I, I, you, you want to be able to appreciate that, that earnestness and really, you know, um, be able to yourself um, experience it. And a lot of, you know, some of the, the reasons why people who are attracted to New York aren't attracted to pop bands, right? It's because a lot of them do it in a way that is kind of off-putting, right? Or forced. And uh, that's just, that was not the case on, on that record. And as I think uh, exemplified by obviously, um, you know, the neighborhood songs and, and wake up, but also by Haiti, um, which was, you know, kind of regime song about um, where she's from. And that was, was so, uh, you know, earnest in the extreme. Uh, Political Beats is the uh, podcast presentation of National Review. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Our guest uh, this week, Tim Miller, former Jeb Bush 2016 Communications Director, co-founder of America Rising and current partner at Definers Public Affairs. We're talking about Arcade Fire. Uh, These two guys, fans for a long time. And I tell you, I come at this from the uh, uh, perspective of someone who is new to the band. I knew of Arcade Fire and never dove into them. I think one of the main reasons is a, a number of the of the touchstones that that were used to describe them um were not like my favorite artists. Um you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen especially on Neon Bible, uh David Bowie who, who loves God, them. I hate that comparison. <laughs> uh, talking heads. Same. Yeah. And and so I didn't I didn't really I I, I liked them, but they were not my passions th- those particular bands. Um, and so it took me until this prompting really to explore them deeper. And I, I think you're you're right, uh, Tim. And, and some of those comparisons aren't all that apt. Um, and I, I got in through Funeral. I, I went in order basically. And so Funeral was the first album that I that I that I took in. And I, I hate when someone says, you know, it's going to take you three or four listens to for you to fully appreciate uh, an album. I, I liked it from the start, but it did take probably three spins uh, until I fully appreciated how how good it was. Uh, you know, the neighborhood songs, 
Crown of Love for me is 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 a standout track. Um, yes, that album, that that fifties era piano line that that goes through. It's like this oasis of very of sweetness in in the rest of the album. And uh, you know, yesterday I was listening in the car. I found myself having to crank the uh, the volume when Rebellion came on. That's a song that just. You know, if we were in a normal era of radio play, you know, where there are actual still still uh, radio stations that played rock tracks and, and rock artists weren't making country albums all the time to get radio play, Rebellion would would have been a song that was on all the time. That's a that's to me can be a, a windows down volume up kind of sing along track that that would have been giant on the radio years ago. I mean, and the thing about the uh, tracks on Funeral is that you have a, a trick, uh, just from a songwriter perspective, and, and uh, I have spent a lot of time playing music, writing music, bad music, mind you, uh, and singing and performing it. What I love so much about Funeral as an album is that it is so mature in terms of its songwriting approach. If you've listened to the earlier stuff that Arcade Fire did, uh, their first EP, which I think is very good, um, but it definitely is kind of feels like their prehistory. And then even earlier than that, their early demos where they started off as kind of a kind of hapless, hopeless folk rock band that didn't really have their stuff together. Um, they learned how to put together a fascinating song, a structure, a mm -hmm. song. There are 10 songs on Funeral. Only one of them fades out. This is, for me as a songwriter, key. They actually have starts, they have middles, they have endings. They, they don't ever, the only one that fades out, ironically enough, is Crown of Love. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it goes off into that wonderful disco thing, which is the other thing I want to focus on. On that first album, they have this really neat trick that they use several times. Uh, they, they use it on Crown of Love, they use it on uh, Onane Sans Lumière, which is... A, translated into english it's a year without light uh they use it most famously on wake up which is that halfway through the song they change it up finger snap curtain draws boom new song new style new idea they go into a completely different mode so you can never get too tired of what it is they're doing and it just has such forethought that is put into it, that it's stunning. When you hear the first EP and the early demos, and then for them to come out with this, this thing that sounds like, the analogy that I try to, to usually use is, and I think it's a great one, is that in terms of debut albums, Funeral, the only thing I can think of to compare it to is R.E.M.'s Murmur, in the sense that these are first albums that don't sound like debut albums even though they're made by young men and women they sound like the not the not the beginning of a career but the culmination of a career because of so much craft and confidence that is put into them when you have that little break at the end of crown of love where he's you know he builds up he's like you're the only one the only one that i can say and then it goes disco <laughs> bam and suddenly it's donna summer you know and you're in the disco and you're like, what's going on here and you're like wow
same thing with Wake Up. Wake Up, it starts off as this hard rock track, and then halfway through, suddenly it's um, Diana Ross and the Supremes. It is a straight-up Motown cop, and I love it. And it because it, it suddenly turns from something that's angry and forceful to something that has a strangely... I don't know how to characterize this, a surpassing grace. It has this light thing that speaks to a, a, a hope, uh, maybe, I suppose, uh, a, a hope for something better and a hope for something higher. And it just conveys that simply through the operation of the music alone. And that's leaving aside the lyrics. The lyrics of these songs are, are, are really kind of compelling in the sense that the people weren't writing about. You have the neighborhood tracks. We, for those who aren't aware, Funeral was divided fairly uh, squarely into two halves. The first half are these four songs that are called Neighborhood, one, two, three, and four. They each have subtitles, Tunnels, Leica, Power Out, Seven Kettles. And there's one song in the middle of there. And then the second half is where like all the big singles that you may have heard come from. Wake Up is obviously one, and Rebellion, which we've talked about, is the other. Um, but the first half is lyrically and thematically devoted to the sorts of things that would end up sort of taking over the band in terms of Wynn Butler, um, the lead singer-songwriter of the group, taking over his vision for the next several years. And it's covered in ways that aren't cloying, as Tim says. He talks, the first song is called Tunnels, and it's this, it sounds like it was written in the middle of a polar vortex. Uh, people climbing out of their windows in the middle of the snow. Their parents are fighting. There's sadness at home, but we're going to escape. We're going to find a new life. We're going to grow our hair out long and raise our children, and we're going to live a new noble life alone. And it, it, the adolescence of it, the immaturity of it is openly acknowledged and yet celebrated. And to be able to hit that tone, to strike that very, very specific chord, you have to have a surgeon's ability to just just narrow right in there without tripping all over yourself and, and messing everything else up. It could have gone wrong in so many different ways. Leica is the second song. It's a, a basically about a, you know, a family member, a brother who wanders off on his own to seek his own fortune and uh, basically ends up being forsaken by, by family, by fortune, by God. And again, the power of that song is impossible to convey unless you are truly able to channel the adolescent power of what it means to be in those situations but with a maturity and a songwriting ability that speaks to people who have been doing it all their lives to old men and that's what's so stunning about funeral the um the two things that you said i just before we move on from funeral that i i just i i'm glad that you guys both brought up crown of love um because it isn't right the highlight necessarily on the album from reviews it isn't the one song you tell somebody to listen to on the album but it is such a perfect sunday sunday scaries <laughs> song <laughs> in a depressed Sunday afternoon and they they hit it so perfectly um, to uh, to uh, you know allow you to have an emotional connection with with Wynn and Regine and um, the, to your point that you you kind of jumped over Jeff about their first record and when you know as a debut album you know how impressive it is mm -hmm. uh, I, I always think that the debut albums that are impressive for me are things that you have to think back on and say well you know where you know, something that now might seem maybe almost cliche, 
but at the time was so exciting as a first thing. And that, that's and this, the f- sound on funeral and on, you know, wake up has been on so many car commercials and movies at this point. And there were so many imitators uh, that, that Arcade Fire even joked about this themselves. They said that, that they, you know, innovated the millennial whoop um, <laughs> that you hear in all these, all these songs. <laughs> it's this kind of loud scream mm-hmm. and it was and it was in a sense it became very emblematic of you know sort of what i think about when i think about sort of the, the mid-aughts mu- uh, music and in that sense it's kind of for me more like you know i mean maybe in the sense the guns and roses debut album right where that like sounds che- cheesy and cliche now but was so you know new at the time obviously it's it's uh, the parallels arcade fire i guess would be the Strokes record, but in a way, I think the Strokes record was a lot more about a kind of rebirth of similar types of music, whereas Arcade Fire took it to a new place. It's Political Beats, a uh, pre- presentation of National Review. You can subscribe to our feed, new episodes through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in. I'm Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD. Tim Miller with us today at Tim ODC. And we're talking about Arcade Fire. Jeff, do you want to slide forward um, or, or stay on funeral for a little longer? Well, I, I think we should slide forward. The, the one thing I, I do want to say before we move on is that one, another thing that impresses me, uh, it always impressed me about Arcade Fire, is that you know you have the, the standard husband and wife thing, and what does it call to mind? It calls to mind John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh, it calls to mind Paul and Linda McCartney. Oh, oh God, the wife's on the album. This is going to be a groaner. Um, Win Butler and Regine Chasson, that is an equal partnership. On Funeral, you have two songs that are sung and presumably written by Regine uh, that are every bit the equal of everything else that's on that record. And, of course, her contributions for every record moving forward, which we'll get to, are on that same level. They are fantastic. She has this one song called Haiti. Uh, Regine Chasson, for those who aren't aware, is actually a, a French-Haitian. Her family fled Haiti during the uh, Duvalier years in the 60s, and it has this sort of light, bouncy beat. You think it's kind of a frothy, disposable track, and then you listen to the lyrics, and it's about like fleeing from the death squads, hiding in the forest. You know, you know, the ghosts of the past will come back to haunt you, and it's like dark. It's so dark. And then you have the opposite. The last song on the album is the maybe I think one of the most majestic things Arcade Fire has ever recorded or released. It's a song called In the Back Seat, and it's literally her just saying, you know, I love the peace in the back seat. I don't have to drive. I don't have to speak. I can just watch the countryside go by. And it captures an image so beautifully of just lying back there and looking out the window and seeing the blur of you know, mountains and hills and green and sky float by or stars for that matter in a way that I just never heard a song do before. And then builds to this majestic, majestic climax. And she sings like a siren. She has a very high pitched voice. I think people Mm -hmm. have compared her to Bjork. I think that's a pretty good comparison in terms of her tonality, the purity uh, sort of, I think of like a straight silver line.
Yes, sir. That's such a bro attitude that I uh, am totally uh, recognized that I have in myself, which is that same mindset, which is like, oh, God, it's the white song, right, where they come on. And you're totally right. That is absolutely the opposite here. Uh, you know, it's with on, moving on, on Suburbs a couple albums ahead for all two. The Re- Regine song is, <laughs> is maybe the best thing that they've done. And, you know, the other, there is another example of that that, that um, has happened recently, which is um, Jason Isbell, mm-hmm. who listens to that, and his wife, Amanda Shire. And um, in the same way, just like Regine, kind of Amanda, uh, his, his records since, you know, they've gotten back together and since they've collaborated are so much better and richer now. And I, I think that that is definitely true of, of Wynn and Regine in a way that it's not about some of those other folks you mentioned, Jeff. I think... I think of Wynn and Regine as the happy ending version of Richard and Linda Thompson, which is a fairly obscure folk reference for those who might get it. And if you don't, well, Google Richard and Linda Thompson. Good music. But, of course, that takes us on to their second album. And here's the thing about Arcade Fire. Um, Their one flaw, if you can call it that, is they make a record approximately once every presidential administration. They take a long time between albums. So... Funeral was released in 2004. They had a lot of hype cycle. It built up. It got big. The second album, Neon Bible, came out in 2007. This is one that I think there has been a certain amount of backlash towards, but here is my secret confession, and I'm going to throw this out there and let anyone else comment on it first. I think I might like it every bit as much as Funeral and maybe even a little more. For me... Um, I, I think this might have been the toughest album to understand, to get into, to appreciate. Uh, there are some clear highlights. Uh, Intervention is an amazing song with that pipe organ and the chimes at the start and the lyrics. Every spark of friendship and love will die without a home. Intervention is such a great, great song. Um, but Neon Bible took a while for me to get. I, I would not say it's it's my favorite. Uh, I wouldn't say it's my second favorite uh, either. Uh, but there are some some clear highlights. And, and No Cars Go, which I know we'll talk about here, you know, bringing that back from the uh, EP uh, right near the close of the album. You know what? I appreciate artists that know how to close an album. The Rolling Stones, if you look back on their career, they know how to close an album. Some of their best songs are literally the last track on their big albums. And what I noticed, too, is Arcade Fire, they know how to close an album. Some of the best tracks uh, in their catalog come in the last track or the last two, three tracks of an album. And I love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a great that's a great point as well. It was one of my disappointments about this new album as I was waiting for that track at the end. But... Um, as far as the Bible is concerned, you know, it's funny. I I have gained much more of an appreciation for it recently. Um, I, I went back and have listened to it a bunch um, since we decided to do this, and kind of forgot how much I liked some of those songs. Like you mentioned, intervention um, in particular, the standout, the well and the lighthouse. I, I think that for me personally, it's that 2007 was 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 maybe the powerhouse year in indie rock. And, you know, it was kind of right as I was really, you know, had, had gotten into it and started to appreciate it. Uh, you had Panda Bear did Person Pitch that year. LCD Sound System did Sound of Silver. MIA's first record came out. And Rainbows was out that year. 
I absolutely yeah. loved of Montreal. Uh, Hissing Fauna, Are You the Destroyer? It might uh-huh. be one of my five favorite records of the of the um, decade. Animal Collective. So I I, I kind of feel like I did not, I lost it in the shuffle a little bit um, that year uh, because it did not have you know the the track that I wanted to blare at the beach house every <laughs> night in the same way that Funeral does and that, that the Suburbs does and that Reflector does. Um, but uh, re-listening to it now, and I, I think also within the kind of the arc of um, of their albums, I, I'm I'm with you, Jeff. I've, I've gained a huge appreciation for it, and it's. Um, I, I mean, I like it as much as all the others. I mean, I think the criticism that people will sometimes lodge, and we even touched on this earlier, the criticism that people lodge against Neon Bible is that it's the album where Arcade Fire has always been a band that has been very proud to wear its musical influences right on its sleeve. I mean, mm-hmm. literally right on its heart for that matter. You know, the Motown stuff on Wake Up. There's Seven Kettles from Funeral might as well have just been titled We Really Like Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. <laughs> um, it, basically, it's My Father's House Redux. But uh neon bible is the one where you really hear a lot of the stuff that they've been listening to reflected back in the music so like black mirror is the opening song probably one of the only two or three only two songs that i think are kind of lesser than the rest um it's basically david bowie's suffragette city uh the end Yep. bit of yep. Suffragette City, uh, you know, looped <laughs> for about three and a half minutes. And it's fairly effective, but it's just like, okay, obviously you guys were listening to the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. Um, similarly, you can hear uh, Bruce Springsteen. I know it's a cliche, Tim, but it is true. You can hear his influence all over a lot of these things, like the Keep the Car Running, which is one the big uh, single. I mean, that's the, the prime one for sure. Yeah, I mean, the diction on that, but it's not even just that. It's also Antichrist Television Blues, which is, by the way, a great song and a fantastically odd lyric that I think is written about, like, um, like Lindsay Lohan's parents or Jessica Simpson's parents, so the kinds of parents who have kids who are stars, and they kind of exploit them and feel very guilty about it and wonder, well, you know, is this a good thing? But I don't want to live in a crappy job and uh, work in an office downtown for the rest of my life. Uh, an interesting conceit for a song, and it's a great musical track, but it absolutely sounds like something from Born in the USA, uh, or at least maybe an outtake from Born in the USA. And then you have influences that are probably a little more difficult for people who don't have, who are just based on classic rock to understand. No Cars Go, the rearrangement of No Cars Go, one of the best songs on that record, uh, the ending part of that song where it builds and it builds and it builds and the, these guitars are just screaming and vol planning in the background. It basically sounds like it was influenced by Godspeed You Black Emperor, which is a band that I, I don't know if you could even call it a band. It's an anarcho-syndicalist musical collective from Montreal. Um, they would probably dismiss Arcade Fire as being hopelessly bourgeois <laughs> and, uh, you know, terribly obsessed with fame and fortune and uh, terribly obsessed with actual song structure and lyrics. But Godspeed You Black Emperor is a pretty interesting group. I have all of their records and they're primarily an instrumental 16 people in the group. Um that build up, the screaming build up at the end of No Cars Go uh, is a straight tribute to stuff off of Lift Your Skinny Fists uh, like Antennas 
uh, which is one of our Godspeed You Black Emperor's greatest albums from 2002. Uh, that kind of stuff is found all throughout Neon Bible. Um, but I don't really think that's a reason you know, to that, um, Jeff, just really quick on that. I mean, that also ties to this kind of what I, for me, about my initial experience where it, it didn't click with me as much, I don't think, in 2007, because it also came out another record I didn't mention from that year was Boxer by The National, which was just yes. such a of-the-moment post-9-11 New York rock, you know, album that was that, that felt very current. Uh, you know, both in, in the lyrics and, you know, in the way that they kind of had jumped in their career from, from their past records to, to a fuller sound. And like, and that stood out as such a star that year that, that in some ways Neon Bible felt you know, not quite as, you know, as your, I guess to your point, not quite as current um, as, um, uh, you know, in the moment as The National and some of those other, like Panda Bear, some of those other records did. But, um, listening back to all that stuff now, I mean, there, there's still just such phenomenal moments on it, uh, particularly from kind of the fourth track to the eighth in the middle of the record. So the argument that I would make in favor of Neon Bible is that it's much more. There's wild energy on Funeral. Neon Bible is controlled, and I and I think it's controlled in a good way. The suburbs, which you like, and I'm not as big of a fan of, is too controlled in my opinion. It's too overthought. But Neon Bible has things like its title track, which is just this kind of weird acoustic thing. There's some violins playing softly in the background. There's some hum. There's some, I guess, might, you know, amplifier feedback that you hear in the background. It's a very beautiful, tense song. You keep expecting it to explode into some giant revelation, some climax that of the sort you would hear it on Crown of Love, for that matter. And it never does. It just goes doom, boom, boom, soft pulse, and then it just dies. And then intervention, those big organ-like church, you know, keys come in, well-sequenced record. And then I think of songs like No Cars Go, and I really want to spend some time talking about this. This is a song that they had been playing since 2002. It, it, it basically is a thematic rewrite of the Beach Boys in my room. You know, hey, when I go into my room, I can be alone <laughs> with my thoughts, and that's where life is beautiful. And this is the millennial rewrite of it. Uh, I know a place where no cars go. You know, it's between the click of the lights and the start of the dream. And then at the end, it builds up into this incredible, powerful, sort of deeply, even just talking about it, I feel emotional because there's some sort of weird hope that like through this music, something greater can be achieved, which we all know is a fantasy. But when you hear it, when you hear that build up, you believe, <laughs> you believe.
And, um, you know, beyond that, you also have stuff like uh, Windowsill. Um, Windowsill is a song that people don't talk about. It's just like, again, kind of that Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska, you know, repetitive acoustic guitar riff that just builds and builds, and then the strings come in. Arcade Fire, of course, has its own sort of homebrew string front line, which is another reason why they're fairly unique as a band. Uh, you have that, you have the Well in the Lighthouse, and then Black Wave, Bad Vibrations. These are two more kind of two-part songs. There's a lot of variety on that record that I think is is under-respected. It's Funeral that everyone praises. It's The Suburbs that won the Grammy. Reflector is their dance move. Neon Bible kind of falls between the cracks, but I really don't think it should. Political Beats is uh, the name of the podcast you're listening to. Presentation of National Review. Subscribe, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in for new episodes Monday mornings. My name is Scott Bertram. Jeff Blair and Tim Miller is with us this week at Tim ODC. Former Jeb Bush 2016 Communications Director, current partner at Definers Public Affairs. We're talking about Arcade Fire, and we'll pivot from um, uh, we'll pivot from the Bible to the suburbs, which, as Jeff just mentioned, won a Grammy. Uh, you alluded to the fact that Tim likes this album a lot. I think if you forced me to choose, I'd probably say The Suburbs is my favorite album of Arcade Fires as well. Ah, um, unexpected know. Grammy, undeserved Grammy. Ah, the, make the, your case. The first track, the the the, the title track, this Kinks like vibe, I, I enjoy through some of the album. Um, I, I like. It. I think the vocals are are up in the mix a bit, starting with The Suburbs too, a little cleaner a little clearer which which I don't mind and this you know this theme of the suburbs and growing up and and uh escape and finding your your place um reminds me a lot of another album that I love from uh probably was a couple of years before or right around the same time uh Hold Steady's Boys and Girls in America with I think yeah, some so similar around the same time a little before yeah uh, very similar themes um in in both albums which I like City with No Children uh, very direct track, guitar, bass, hand claps. Uh, I like that one a lot. Suburban War, you know, hold steady. Uh, not steady. Uh, Arcade Fire is, is is a band that's not afraid to swing and miss, or at least take their swing. Suburban War to me sounds like a big swing and a big hit. I, I think they they got exactly what they were grasping for on uh, Suburban War. Oh, but it's War. so funny because it's exactly what I think the opposite. Oh, that's their big swing <laughs> and their big miss. So it's and, oh, it's a controversy. And right, uh, keep going though. And I'll kind of hand it off to Tim because he had mentioned how much he enjoyed uh, Sprawl Two. Um, that's just a great track. It would fit on either of the two most recent albums as well, I think. But Sprawl 2, again, towards the back end of the album is, is a great track. And yeah, I think if I'm, if I'm telling you my favorite uh, Arcade Fire album, it's probably The Suburbs, Tim. Well, it's just so complete as an album. I'll be, I'll, we'll be interested to hear Jeff's rebuttal to this. But I, I mean, as he said at the beginning, introducing uh, you know kind of your musical past, you said you know, that you have an appreciation for the album as an art, and so does Arcade Fire in a way that that a lot of the other current bands you know don't do as well in kind of the MP3 universe, where you're kind of leaking out single after single, and. Uh, and the entirety for me of the suburbs is cohesive. The the lyrics match the the tone of the music and match what they're trying to say about you know grow, what it's like growing up in the suburbs. I mean, you really almost could not have lyrics 
and could just listen to all of these songs as instrumentals and hear that the title of the record was The Suburbs and, and almost get the point um, without even hearing what they had to say. But the lyrics are so, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they, are, they are not, you know, cliche. Like, they don't go too far. You know, they make, they make their point without overdoing it. You know, I think in some ways the ambiguity of them um, to a casual listener prevents it, as I was saying earlier, from becoming too cloying. And uh, uh, so for me, I, I just think that it also, the reason why it won a Grammy, and I couldn't give a tell less about the Grammys, who cares? <laughs> but I think the reason why I connected with so many people is because it hit, you know, it, it, you know right in the nose, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this, you know, big potential audience. I mean, this is an experience that a lot of, you know, listeners, what, you know, what, what, like their experience is relevant, you know, middle class, white people growing up in the suburbs. Like, you know, we don't have to pretend like that's not who Arcade Fire's <laughs> main audience is, right? It is. And so, and, you know, their, their, um, you know, feelings and, um, and experiences and emotions are relevant. And, and Arcade Fire nails it by, you know, talking about sort of this desire for authenticity. Um, what, be it either, you know, being drawn to, you know, kind of the more rural, authentic life as kind of hipsters are, you know, cliche hipster, you know, living in New York, growing artisanal foods. Um, uh, and also in the same time, drawn to the city, you know, when you have, um, you know, the lyrics about, you know, going to see the modern kids, right? Mm-hmm. And, and see what the modern kids are doing and try to understand what the cool kids are doing in the, in the city. There's this, um, element to, to that on there. I also like um, its timeliness, you know, its relevance coming after the, you know, market, uh, the crash of 2008. Um, I think that, you know, it, it speaks to, you know, a lot of experiences people are having in that time. One of my favorite lyrics is on a song that Jeff told me on DM that he thought should not be on the album, which is extremely offensive. This is Half Light 2, um, which is probably my, my favorite song on the record. And, you know, they say in there, though we knew this day would come, uh, still it took us by surprise. And I think that was, it, it had a double meaning in the sense that that's true about you know, kind of leaving, right, the suburbs and growing up um, and, and you know, the, the, the feelings of kind of being drawn back to that. You know it was going to come, but, you know, you still have the sense of surprise. It also is true, and I think it's a win-win at, you know, all of us, the hacks, the bankers, and the politicians, the people in D.C., <laughs> who kind of had this sense that, um, you know, the, the economic boom was built on shaky ground, but um, didn't want to do anything by it, and then, you know, were essentially taken by surprise in the result. So um, I thought I thought it hit on all on all marks, and, and it's, I don't know if it's better than Funeral, but, but it's, it's a phenomenal record and well-deserved. Somewhere near the end of the suburbs, uh, there's a song that, to me, embodies everything this album could have been and that I wish it had been, but that it, to my mind at least, isn't. It's called We Used to Wait. 
It's just a very kind of a simple piano track. You know, you're playing a sort of a plaintive line, repetitive line, and and then you know when Butler sings about how you know I used to write letters, I used to sign my name, I used to sleep at night before the flashing lights settled into my brain. He talks about life before technology took over, life before living in a in a time where we it was every it kind of prefigures everything now if you think about it. It's so moving because I guess maybe uh, it has personal resonance to me at least. Uh, I'm an old man. I'm 36. <laughs> I, I remember growing up in like the 80s and the early 90s where uh, you know I, I didn't have this immediate access to information to the internet. I had to write letters. I had if I wanted to talk to people, I would go get on a landline and sit on the phone on the landline in the kitchen and talk to the girl I really liked. Um, that kind of a thing. That immediacy that has been stripped from us through the technological age, I found the very simple, plaintive way that uh, Arcade Fire wrote about this and then put it into a really beautiful musical track to be moving in a way that um, so many of the other more obvious plays on the suburbs were not. Now... When what, I which think ones were like too so obvious for you? Which ones are too on the nose? Because I do think this would be my compliment to Arcade Fire that sometimes that, that I think they push right up against the edge, right? Which is if you're a band like U2, you know, like I, sure, I love Joshua Tree, I like Acton Baby, but like when you go see them now, like you can't, <laughs> you, you can't even enjoy it, right? Because like Bono right. will spend 20 minutes giving a speech in the middle of the, of the concert. And, and so it, 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 it is just too on the nose. Right to a point that it takes. Am I bugging you? Like, I'll, I'll, Am I bugging you? Okay, Edge, yeah. play the blues. Right. <laughs> it's just too hard. And, and some day. people have that criticism of Arcade Fire. I think that they, I think that they stay on the right side of the line. But I'd be curious where you where you think they miss. Okay, here's my thing. I think Arcade Fire have had a, a problem with two part songs, and starting with the suburbs. Parts song suites are half baked, and I mean that both as a pun and as a literal truth. That. Second half, one of the two is usually good, and then when they sort of dyadically align them, it doesn't work out. So the suburbs and suburban war are basically two halves of the same point. The suburbs is a great song. To me, is kind of pleasing glurge. It doesn't really have much sort of musical or lyrical interest, and in fact, it quotes half of the lyrics of the suburbs. It's supposed to sort of have a thematic resonance. Oh, hey, look, we're coming back to this. Um, but no, Half Light One and Half Light Two. Half Light Two, okay. I, I, you know, I went back and I listened to it a couple times after we we talked before the show about this. It's a good song. It's not a bad song. Half Light One is garbage. Half Light Two is pretty good. <laughs> Same with Sprawl One and Sprawl Two. Sprawl One is. It's two minutes and 57 seconds of prelude. It's like literally feels like it was written just so there would be a reason to have Sprawl Two. With a two behind it. Sprawl 2 was one of the best songs that Arcade Fire has ever recorded. Why is Sprawl 1 even on the album? They just should have called it Sprawl. That's what I don't understand about this record. And I think it's a problem with both the suburbs it's, uh, and Reflector, which attention. I really like. It's, it's, it's about the tension building. It's about the ennui. You know? No, like, listen, you know what? You can build tension in 30 seconds. You don't need hooks, to take three you know? minutes it's of my life. Hooks, hooks, hooks. <laughs> But here's the, you know, I, I've been so critical of the suburbs. I want to point out that the first like five to six songs 
on that album are fantastic. Suburbs, Ready to Start, is a really great rock song. Modern Man is actually one that I think may be my favorite song on that record. Uh, it's yeah. this really weird little like two-step thing where they alternate 4-4 four, four with 5-4 time. So it's like you feel like you're out of step with the real world, with the, the modern routine. People actually I've seen online make fun of it. They don't like it. It's like this is a song about how horrible it is to stand in line and wait for things. I'm like, you stupid idiots. It's a metaphor. Get over it. It's a good point. It's a good thematic point. You stand in your life your whole life, and then you end up with nothing. This is not a really difficult conceit to understand. Why do people object to it? Rococo, Empty Room, City with No Children. First six songs on that record are great. Then there's just a lot of unnecessary stuff that shouldn't be there. And then it ends, of course, with maybe, and you know, I'm going to hand this one over to Tim, could be one of the greatest songs that Arcade Fire has ever written, which is Sprawl 2. Regine's... Yeah, I would, I would accept cutting Deep Blue. I would accept cutting Deep Blue. I think the album could be, would, would not lose anything for having cut, cut Deep Blue. So there, there may be a little fast on the second half. I'll, I'll defend Sprawl 1. For the build-up to Sprawl 2, which is, I guess, my, the, the way that I would be able to describe um, the energy in Sprawl 2 is when I was, uh, they, it was the closer at Coachella, they headlined Coachella, and there's something, um, I, you know, bands, when they go to Coachella, they're just at sort of another level, and it is kind of crazy, the scene that you're in, and, um, you know, even a band as big as Arcade Fire that plays, um, uh, to play stadium shows, there's something a little bit different about being on the main stage there and to close the night. And mm -hmm. they finish with Sprawl 2, and um, in the refrain on the hook each time where they say, and please cut the lights, I swear my memory from that is that they cut every light in uh, the field at India. I don't know if what really happened is I closed my eyes or I had <laughs> one too many pops, but I mean, that was the power that that is what sticks with me in my memory is that they had such, you know, there, there was, it was it's such a punch in the face. Um, and, from, and, to, and then to combine, you know, the musical force of it with, with Regine's lyrics, um, you know, this is, you know, she's not exactly, you know, Axl Rose up there. Uh, um, you know, she is, basically singing operatically over it um it's it's a phenomenal track it's a song so good that you don't even care that it is obviously at least instrumentally a complete rip off of blondie's heart of glass <laughs> and, and and there's this part at the end of it where you know they go into a little instrumental bit they modulate up a key and then regine comes back in with the you know they heard me singing and they told me to stop and it's in a higher key and she just like dives in like a hawk out of the sky. Let's hear you do it. Let's hear your falsetto. Let's, <laughs> let's, hear, your, let's hear your falsetto on that one. Uh, <laughs> you know what? We'll, we'll, we'll do the after show for that. But, okay. Uh, yeah. I, you know what? I, I'm almost tempted to... <laughs> yeah. Pressure's on. Such a, 
it's such a yeah yeah you know what you know yolo right no but it's such a transcendent moment and it is the best moment on that and here's the thing about that when i heard the suburbs in 2010 i thought to myself i said you know i kind of feel like i'm worried like this is a band i really love are they kind of falling into you know a rut are they kind of repeating themselves this seems self-consciously a concept album even though it's one that certainly speaks to my suburban upbringing and then I heard Sprawl too, and I was like, but you know, I really hope this is the way they go. This is this 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 is something new. This is something different. This is the direction. Is there, we should is there a better indie concept, concept album? I guess the yeah. cliche answer would probably be would probably be Illinois. But is there anything else that's in the mix? I don't know. How about how about um. Big fan of in the airplane over the sea, but a lot of other people would stand up for that one. I love that record. Well, I don't. King of Care Flowers, my ass. But I am not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Neutral Milk Hotel. That said, when I heard Sprawl 2, I thought, well, I hope they do this. I had no idea what would happen. And then Reflector came out in 2013. And I could not have been more happy because they actually did. They took Sprawl 2 and they said, that's the new sound. That's where we go. And they made an entire album out of it. And my God, what an incredible record. And so I'm going to hand it over to someone else to talk about what I think is one of the best records Arcade Fire has ever done. I'll pop in on this one because, uh, you know, this is um, produced by James Murphy of LCD Sound System. And Mm -hmm. in candor, you know, if I, uh, Jeff got to pick the show. I don't know if you guys can tell who's so super excited about Arcade Fire. I love Arcade Fire. But if I was picking my show, I would have done LCD Sound System, which is, um, you know, I think the, the, the king among among peers of the kind of aughts indie indie rock scene. Um, we'll have you back and, sometime in the future, Tim. <laughs> yeah, we can argue about. It. We can just do an LCD V Arcade Fire show next time. Um, but Murphy comes and produces this record and um, and obviously puts his stamp on it. And like mm-hmm. you said, I think that there were um, uh, um, signs of of the Arcade Fire was moving this direction with a song like Sprawl too, um, but. Um, the per- the percussion, um, the 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 dancey elements, uh, the more the precision on the sound um, in the way that you know the record is is produced as opposed to kind of a more DIY sound, particularly on the first two records. I guess that's less the case on the suburbs as well. Um, and uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's really a tour de force. And I think that what what James did was it was he produced a um, dancey arcade fire record, right? Like it, well, it didn't, it didn't, it, it, it could have become something where it like sounds like arcade fire is imitating, um, you know, LCD sound system or other more dance bands, and it didn't sound like that. Uh, the, the record, you know, maintained, um, you know, all of the elements of arcade fire, particularly, obviously, I think on Here Comes the Nighttime. Um, which would be, you know, the highlight in that regard that has these sort of um, Caribbean uh, beats that, you know, Regine in particular likes to infuse into um, into their records. And uh, I think that's a song that came among some criticism by some of the lefties over, uh, you know, cultural appropriation or whatever. But um, uh, they're so self-aware about it, right? I mean, they, you know, this is something that they, they recognize um, that, uh, um, you know, that they wanted to, you know, make a sound that kind of, you know, had that 
uh, same sense that got people's foot tapping from their experience going down to Haiti and playing at Haiti um, for people who didn't um, weren't familiar with a lot of the kind of more classical rock elements of, of Arcade Fire. So, I, I mean, I think that's a fantastic uh, song. The a- Afterlife is, uh, to your point, Scott, the um, a song at the end of the record. They know yes. how to end a record after that. Afterlife's the best song on the record um, by far, and I think really summarizes, um, um, you know, kind of complements, you know, the sort of Arcade Fire um, earnestness um, and ties it into into the dance record. Um, I, I, I think Reflector is phenomenal. And when I, uh, the, on their live Reflector tour, um, they had a, a fantastic gimmick where each city they did a um, uh, a local uh, cover um, that was uh, that was relevant to the city. And so um, uh, in D.C., uh, they played. Um, off of uh, 13 songs, well, I'm blanking the name, off of Fugazi, they played wait- Waiting Room, <laughs> um, which was so cool um, to, to see them have the, just the pure punk influence. And then I saw them in New York a few weeks later, and they brought out Marky Ramone and did a whole number of Ramone songs, um, I think, which um, uh, it sort of just demonstrates, you know, how you know they wanted to kind of infuse this kind of punk element as well into the dance record. Uh, I, I was reading a bit about Reflector, and I saw a quote from Wynn Butler in, uh, about the, the making of. He said, if you can get J- uh, James Murphy tapping his foot, you know you're on the right track. It's a pretty good summation of what's happening, I think, on, uh, on, on Reflector. The title track, the first track, that is a killer song. And of all the Arcade Fire I've listened to over the past two, two to three weeks, it's a song that gets stuck in my head most often that I, I've got to go back and play again. to it it is a dance funk kind of track um but the lyrics are solid um if this is heaven i need something more just a place to be alone uh i i love the title track uh we exist is excellent uh, tim mentioned afterlife right at the end of the album that's kind of it's like the most old school old model arcade fire track i think on the album um and it's a great one right near the tail end uh, Jeff was critical of the suburbs being a little bloated. Um, I would I would say Reflector to me is a little bloated, and I know that Jeff loves the second disc or the second half of the album. I will kick it to him to def- to defend because outside of Afterlife and I, I like Supersymmetry, which which closes the album. The rest of the second half didn't do it for me as much as it does for you. Oh, so they could have cut four now. God. They could have cut four now. Yeah, yeah. No, they could not have cut porno. That's one of my favorite songs. People are so wrong. Okay, listen. First of all, the funny thing is you talk about Reflector, you talk about liking the lyrics. This album is, first of all, Reflector is a collaboration with David Bowie. He sings on the on the backing yep. uh, track. He's the backing vocals. Um, you can hear him uh, in the middle eight section. And it's very appropriate because... The song itself and the album itself has a lot of really esoteric obsessions that really I would suspect that people who don't drill down onto this stuff understand. Uh, it's uh, 
based on this weird Kierkegaardian philosophical premise that there are two different ages. There's an age of passion and an age of reflection. That the Romantic era of the 19th century, you know, Beethoven, um, you know, Wagner, you know, Lord Byron was an age of passion where people did things and felt things and, you know, having grand noble gestures. But now that we live in an age of reflection where we're not actors, we're mostly critics. We sit there and we tell you why you shouldn't do this, why you shouldn't do that. We critique, we, 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 we henpeck, we, uh, we pull at things instead of actually acting. Reflector is based on that premise. And if that sounds bizarre, well, hey, don't blame me. Blame Wynn Butler. <laughs> that's the entire premise of it. And that's why the cover is a statue of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, the, the classic Greek myth of Orpheus, the, the, the great bard who was – whose voice could, you know, tame the most furious animals. His wife was bitten by a snake and sent to hell, and he descended into hell to try to bring her back. And this is reflected in the only, quote, two-part song that Arcade Fire has ever done that I really think absolutely holds up from start <laughs> to finish. is awful sound oh eurydice it's never over it's the second part uh hey orpheus these are songs that if you don't understand this sort of basic mythological background you may just hear them as nice noise they are profoundly moving and it's kind of an interesting suggestion of how they have evolved as artists as musicians as win butler and regine chasson as lyricists they have grown from this sort of adolescent um, adenoidal, if you will, uh, you know, sincerity to a deeperly, a deeper felt feeling of trying to reach for transcendence, but in a way that isn't embarrassing. This is a song that kind of consciously links itself to timeless classical myth, and yet does it in a way that doesn't feel cliche, doesn't feel overdone, and that in fact, if you weren't explicitly keyed into it the way that I have tried to just do for you now, you would not even necessarily have been aware of. Uh, it's Never Over is one of the songs. I, you, you just said I talk about why do I care so much about the second half of Reflector. It's because, it, it, first of all, it has that dance music vibe. It moves. Everything on that second disc moves. The first half, I think, other than Reflector and We Exist, it gets a little gormless, and I'm not a huge fan of it. But the second disc of Reflector is constantly shifting, mutating, and it's always keeping you on your feet. You start with awful sound then you move on to it's never over then you have uh porno which uh, tim you're so wrong that is a beautiful song <laughs> it's slick it's sleazy it's disgusting but the music is like a late night 2 a.m demo recorded out of disgust and it just conveys all of that vibe and then you go into afterlife which we i think agree afterlife afterlife is the best song on reflector it's one of the five best songs that Arcade Fire ever did. And then finally at the end you have Supersymmetry, which is a very quiet thing that had existed, I think, for many years before. Um, brought 
to bear by the James Murphy production experience in a very subtle way. I actually went around and I researched, I asked questions, um, and I found out that a lot of these songs really basically all existed in the form that you hear them on the album, but it was really a question of how to put them on the record. And and Murphy didn't really write this music. He didn't actually throw like you know uh, songwriting ideas into it. We also asked, well, why is Reflector such a left turn from the suburbs? Suburbs is sort of traditional indie rock. Then Reflector has this very strong dance music vibe. They were always heading in that direction. My theory about Arcade Fire has always been that they were a secret dance band from the start. They wanted to do that. They found Murphy at the right time, and he helped them bring what they had already been there to bear. And the second disc of Reflector is the finest fruit of that collaboration. I would recommend every song on it as being among the best things they ever did. It's Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Subscribe. New episodes Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. Uh, Tim Miller with us talking Arcade Fire. Just time check, guys. We're over an hour, and I know Who we want to. I know. I'm just you know, for your information. Um, I'm not editing any of this out. Come on, it's too fun. <laughs> hey, I know that Tim wanted to talk briefly, at least, about how Arcade Fire started off. At least the Butlers came from the Houston suburbs. They moved and became a Montreal band. They they even wrote a song about how I don't want to live in America no more. It's called Window Cell. And yet now they find themselves living in New Orleans. Tim, what do you have to say? Uh, yeah, I should have mentioned that in my one of the things that attracted me to them at the start. Uh, it's another uh, sort of common bond I have besides the uh, you know suburban uh, angst uh, with the Arcade Fire gang, and that is you know their love of New Orleans. It also is an adopted city for me. My best friends are from New Orleans. My godson is in New Orleans, and um, uh, I go down there at least once or twice a year, and, and uh, I wish that I um, uh, was able, like uh, Wynn and Regine, to just move to the Garden District. But I, I think that their connection with that city is part of um, my connection with them, and it's really interesting in the way that they adopted it in such an authentic way. It kind of makes sense um, with the French influence of Haiti and Montreal and sort of the southern uh, 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 background of wind that, that New Orleans would be kind of the, the, where the, the amalgamation of where they come together. But they've done so much cool stuff in the city about preserving, um, you know, the musical uh, history of the city. When Bowie died, if you haven't seen this on, on YouTube, you must go watch it. They did an awesome uh, second line uh, that they put on uh, where they uh, went through uh, the city with you know, thousands of, of New Orleans kind of residents and tourists kind of following them around, playing Bowie songs um, as sort of a, uh, in, uh, in honor of him uh, following his death. And, you know, they've done, done a bunch of other cool stuff down there in, in the city. And I think that um, it, that is just another example of how they are, you know, kind of unafraid to be just, um, themselves and dorky and uh, following their passions and interests. You know, this is not a band that moved to Brooklyn or L.A., right? It's a Houston, Montreal, New Orleans band. I think that has served them well. The good side of their obsession with New Orleans is that. The downside of their obsession with New Orleans is, of course, the song Chemistry off the new album, Everything Now. Um, <laughs> a... a <laughs> A truly appalling attempt, in my opinion, at uh, capturing that New Orleans band sound, uh, which brings us, of course, to the question of Arcade Fire's most uh, recent release. Which... I don't blame New and Orleans I, for the bad song on the new record, uh, though they did they did record a lot of it there. Uh, maybe it was 
you know, the purple drink from Lafitte, you know, spent, they spent a little <laughs> bit too much time celebrating the local fair. Uh, I, I, so I tell me, does, tell me what you think of the new record though, Tim. Yeah. So here's what I just, I, I want to like it. Um, but I just don't, I, I think that in some ways how reflector felt like very, you know, Bowie and, and Murphy influenced, um, arcade fire music. I think that, uh, everything now sometimes feels like bad, Bowie and Murphy Arcade Fire imitations, particularly the winds, sort of kind of voice chanting, um, you know, lyrics on a couple of the songs, which I, I just don't think works for him in the same way that works for them. The pan flute and ABBA, um, uh, <laughs> everything now, I, I just, it, it's too close for me. I just can't do it. Um, um, you know, I, I'm not, I was not looking for in the market for a new ABBA record and, you know, both infinite content songs. This is to my point earlier, I feel like on the suburbs and on funeral, they're talking about these big themes, um, and, and, and controversial themes, um, and relevant to, you know, our times, but they do it in, in subtle ways and in cute ways. Um, I, I think that, that, that this is way too on the nose, infinite content. It's a, it's a big eye roll. Um, I do love Creature Comfort. Um, I think that's a fantastic song, kind of a new wave uh, sort of vibe. And I think that it also um, uh, now compares pretty unfavorably. We taped this one day after LCD Sound System's new record comes out, which I, I felt like was a much more mature and natural evolution American dream than, than this record was for Arcade Fire. Sorry. I'll jump in because I don't, uh, Jeff's a fan uh, of the record. I would not, uh, I would not qualify myself as a fan. And I, you know, the, the the transition of the band from from uh, uh, funeral to everything now, you know, on the surface, it's this move toward a more dancey feel and and getting uh, LCD sound system and the Daft Punk guys involved in production. I, I think really the biggest uh, slide, the biggest adjustment is this move from the songs being uh, very cathartic and, and about the power of catharsis and, and this honest, earnest pain and and inviting the audience to, to maybe sing with them to this move, especially on everything now, to this detachment um, in both songwriting and, and delivery, as as Tim pointed out, the, the delivery of, of, of Wynn Butler and the, and the vocals is, is, is very different than it was from from a few albums ago and and it's kind of puts the listener at arm's length singing to the listener singing at the audience this is like a, you know a song cycle about consumerism which is I, I think pretty far away from from where they started um Ugh. and and so I, I i don't uh i i think the criticisms of, of which there are many out there are, are are valid for a lot of the album i like put your money on me um i like uh, the signs signs of life, which is again very blondeish, very uh, very blondeish, but um, I, I I can see where there are there are arcade fire longtime arcade fire fans who are not very happy, and I I am on their side. Well, okay, allow me to present the opposing view briefly. I'm a fan of this album. I understand the complaints. I actually would say that chemistry is a terrible song. I agree with you. In the infinite contents seem to be more like thematic jokes. Uh, Win Butler has never worn irony 
well on his brow and it does not come off well in these two songs because it's just clearly like hey yeah consumerism everything now blah 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 in two minutes and 55 seconds of noise doesn't work however you talk about sincerity and catharsis emotional pain being absent from this record and i ask you have you ever listened to we don't deserve love this is a song that's almost in a way kind of a weird inflection on a country genre you know, you say, you know, I'm driving home, I'm listening to a love song, but instead, it's like I'm driving home to you with a terrible song on the radio. What else is new? You're talking about how nobody loves anyone. You know, uh, you know, your mom said to me, your mother's screaming that you don't deserve love. And if you don't deserve love, and if I don't deserve love, well, could we deserve love? Come down off your cross. That's a really painful, painful and well-observed lyric. If you can't see for the trees Just burn it all down And bring the ashes to me It ends the album. It isn't the sort of you know, big grand catharsis that my body is a cage is or um, in the back seat is. But the lyric is painfully sincere. And it's probably one of those ones that slides under the radar of people because they hear the music and they think, oh, yeah, this is just lightweight stuff. I really love Creature Comfort. I really love Put Your Money On Me. Put Your Money On Me probably is my favorite song on the record. Um, Peter Pan, another one that people sort of, dis you know, dismiss. It's a song that was written about, you know, him hearing that his father had, you know, a terminal disease or some really, really horrible, uh, uh, you know, medical condition. And then he recast it as a, uh, like, I'd like to be Peter Pan, you can be my Wendy. But it's the same kind of concept where I, do, I just want to live forever. I don't want to worry about dying in my dreams. You're dying and it wakes me up and I can't stop crying. I think there's a lot more on this album than people really understand right now. And I have a feeling that when the time comes, it will be reevaluated. Now, as to whether they should be still doing the same corns, uh, kinds of transcendent music that they were doing in 2004, my answer to you is bands evolve. Do you want a band to just keep repeating themselves and keep sort of running on the treadmill and doing the same stuff that they've always done? I don't. I care about them moving forward, and I guess what matters to me is whether they move forward in, in, in an interesting way. And if you don't think that this is an interesting move, that I can accept. But to say, like, well, they didn't repeat themselves, that's a criticism that I will never respect for any artist at any time because, hey, people always ask, when will Arcade Fire come out with Funeral Part 2? And my answer to them is, they already did that, and it's called Neon Bible. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, I'm really glad that they're continuing to move forward, and I like the, the, the continued dancey groove that they've taken with the new album. I like the reflector move forward. I hear you. I, I'm not looking for Funeral Part 2. Um, I, I thought I thought that the Portis head elements in in everything now were good, um, particularly on Creature Comfort. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't think it was an interesting move. Um, and uh, I think that yeah, some of these uh, some of, of the some of their contemporaries, um, you know, have have you know are are putting out uh, moves that I, I think you know are more um, uh, uh, that I'm more drawn to. 
Well, you know what? Uh, to their credit, though, there aren't a lot of bands. And if you look at, if you go back to those or mid-aughts bands that I mentioned when I, when I first started listening to indie rock, their contemporaries, The Strokes, The White Stripes, Franz Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of those bands haven't done anything interesting in 10 years. So, um, right. you know, it's not really that much of a criticism to say that there was a miss, um, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years after Funeral came out. Hey, Tim, here's my thinking. In either Donald Trump's second administration or Kamala Harris's first, we'll be able to reunite and talk about the new arcade fire album and see if they move forward. What do you think? That, sounds, that, that sounds good, but I think that Ivanka will have ascended to the, to the throne by then, actually. We'll be in an emperorship at that point, right? Yeah, we'll be in a monarchy. Yeah. What, what do you guys so think? Happy to talk under the monarchy. What do you guys think the next move is? I mean, they are not isolated. You know, the band is not isolated from some of the uh, uh, average reviews or the feedback from everything now they've made, uh, you know, to, you know, you have kind of funeral part one, funeral part two with neon Bible. you have the dancey reflector and, and, and a dancey everything. Now, are, are, you think they continue in that vein? Do you think they, 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 they change things up again? You know, you two famously did Zuropa and pop and then got into back into like a big arena rock afterwards. What's the next move? Listen, if they want to go tech, then I'm fine with that. They want to go pull a kid a, and do an entirely electronic album, I'm on board. But uh, I have no sense of where things go from here. It's just really impossible to know. All right, Political Beats, Arcade Fire. Tim Miller is our guest. I'm Scott Bertram. He's Jeff Blair. And we come to uh, the final part of each and every show, which is uh, choosing two key albums. If you only have you know change in the couch cushions to go get two albums, which one should you grab? And we try to identify, as hard as this might be for a band like Arcade Fire, try to identify five key songs that you should take a listen to. Our guest always goes first. Tim, uh, your two albums, your five key songs. The two albums is so hard. Um, I, I think that, uh, I've, obviously, I've, I've been the suburbs partisan here. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those records I don't find myself skipping songs. Uh, if you're going to have your whole, a whole record on a desert island, I think Suburbs is it. Um, I, I guess, I mean, obviously Funeral has the higher highs, but I, I think I would choose Reflector for my, for my other albums with the Bowie and Murphy influences. Um, the five tracks, uh, I have to do Half Light 2 as a track because of Jeff's impugning of it. And because I know that uh, Will Butler does monitor Jeff's Twitter feed, and so I'm hopeful that can be a highlight on this, because they've only played it eight times. I just went and looked before this thing. They've only played it eight times. One of the eight times was at a show I wanted to go to, but I could not find any friends to go with me uh, back at Meriwether Post Pavilion. I should have gone alone, lesson learned. Uh, And so I'd love to see them bring back Half-Light 2 into the live rotation so so I could see that live. Um, I probably would say uh, Neighborhood Tunnels, uh, first track debut record, um, you know, it uh, uh, stands up there with the kind of 2000s best debut record first track, um, Rebellion, uh, as, as, as my intro to uh, Arcade Fire. Afterlife, as we've discussed, 
And we didn't spend much time talking about Rococo, which I think is another a real highlight on the suburbs um, and uh, um, a very wry uh, kind of lyrical effort by Wynn to basically, you know, talk about how the suburban kids go into the city looking for the cool, relevant stuff. And, you know, you can tell them to start singing Rococo and they'll, they'll sing Rococo <laughs> if they think that's what makes them cool. And, and I think that was a, 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 a cool lyrical effort. So those, those are mine. It was tough. <laughs> a lot of hurt steps for all two off the list. Yeah. What can you do? Um, I'll go. I'll, I'll let Jeff close up. Um, for me, the two albums are uh, the first one, Funeral, and, uh, and The Suburbs. Uh, songs, uh, actually two off a of funeral. Uh, uh, the first song off the first album, Neighborhood uh, Tunnels, starts off the uh, uh, after the EP. You know, the the, the, the full length album career, uh, perfectly, perfectly. Uh, so Neighborhood Tunnels, Rebellion off the first album as well. Uh, from Neon Bible, Intervention is a must listen uh, for me. Just just to hear that wonderful pipe organ running throughout the song. I just, I love it. Um, Jeff will not second this, apparently. I think Suburban War uh, from the suburbs is something you, you have to give a listen to. And uh, from, the, from the last two albums, Reflector, the title track from, from that album, again, that's just the album, or the song that has burrowed its way inside my head over these past weeks. Uh, and it's, what, seven minutes, seven and a half minutes long, but, but worth, worth every second. Uh, so there you go. Jeff? Well, I've talked way too long, so I'll keep this short. Uh, funeral, yes, obviously. The first one, the famous one. Reflector is the other one. Uh, their move to the left, their, their, their curveball, and still holds up beautifully in some of the most uh, powerful music they've ever recorded, especially on the back half. The five songs? Um, neighborhood Two, Leica. That's the one. It's the very loud and bumptious one from Funeral. The second song on the album, Wake Up. Because holy cripes, I can't believe that nobody mentioned that <laughs> song yet. It's Wake Up. It's Arcade Fire's signature piece. No cars go. Um, probably the the moment where they captured the the adolescent hope and transcendence that their early years embodied more perfectly than any other. Sprawl 2, Mountains Beyond Mountains, because that's Regine's finest moment ever. And then finally, Afterlife. I think a lot of us agree that Afterlife is just mm -hmm. one of the most wonderful things that Arcade Fire has ever recorded. It's still a mainstay in their live set, and it probably will be for as long as they continue to make music for a very good reason. Tim Miller, our guest, former Jeb Bush, uh, 2016 Communications Director, co-founder of America Rising, currently partner at Definers Public Affairs, and you can find him on Twitter at TimODC. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, y'all. It was fun. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Jeff Blair at Esoteric CD. Find him on Twitter. I'm sure he will love to interact with you. Uh, <laughs> 
with any thoughts you might have about this. His DMs are open now, actually. Yeah. DMs are open. <laughs> oh, no, Tim, Jesus, don't tell them that. God, no. Uh, you yes, can, it's true. You can talk to him about anything uh, from this Arcade Fire uh, podcast. And uh, my name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter, too, at Scott Bertram. One T in Scott. Again, one episode. I'll tell you why there's just one T in Scott. At least when my parents tell me there's just one T in Scott. Uh, remember to, to uh, subscribe to our feed for new episodes Monday mornings. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Or if you're old school, just go to nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts and you'll find the new episode and old episodes there uh, every single week. This has been a presentation of National Review. It's Political Beats talking arcade fire. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>